This episode of Valley Business Radio was recorded as a bilingual conversation in English and Spanish between colleagues in Phoenix, Arizona and Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico. The version presented here has been adapted for an English-speaking audience, and the Spanish-language segments spoken by Doctora Margarita Bejarano Salaya are being provided as simultaneous interpretation into English by Yvette Marion. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Broadcasting live from the PHX.FM studio in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Valley Business Radio, spotlighting the Valley's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre, and this is part two of a three-part series on mega women in the mega region. We're talking about women in the mining industry in both Arizona and Sonora, our neighbor to the south, and the world beyond. Joining me for this episode is my co-host for the miniseries, Jennifer Burge. Jennifer is CEO of Worldwise Coaching and Training. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Adrian. How are you? I am well. Welcome back. This is a fascinating series of conversations that you've lined up. And I'd love it if you could just give folks that maybe didn't catch part one and need to jump in in the middle here, just situate us, give us a little bit of an orientation to this topic. Why are we talking about mega women in the mega region, women in mining, why is this so important? And what's your intention for this miniseries? Well, first of all, if you missed episode one, shame on you, because it was absolutely interesting and laid out the landscape for um, how important the mining industry is for both Arizona and Sonora. The mega women of the mega region, I think in total, there are about 24 of us who uh, started this conversation back on International Women's Day uh, of this year. The reason that we're having these conversations is to shed light and on, as you mentioned, what is a crucial industry as well as a complex one when it comes to dealing with the various issues involved in terms of collaboration, the mining process in general. And honestly, most people do not associate women with this activity in the slightest. Yeah, there's definitely a sense that mining is male territory and probably to a certain extent the reality on the ground might actually be skewed in that direction but that's why talking about issues affecting women is so important because this is really a cross-cutting issue for society not only issues of equity equality fairness and pay but ending violence discrimination and all the other things so that we can all do better so that the industry can do better so that humanity can do better. So it's a really interesting window into that. And Jennifer, your personal expertise is in intercultural communication. And of course, you got humans working together. There's going to be issues of communication and relationships and so on. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Um, you gave us a little bit of an introduction last time into how you got into this. Let's meet our guests today and learn a little bit about them and how they got into this. And then the conversation will, will unfold from there. Jennifer, who's joining us for this episode? Well, today we have two of my favorite mega women, my co-founder of the mega women of the mega region, Doctora Margarita Bejarana Salaya, the general director of the mining cluster of Sonora. Welcome, Margarita. Hola, mucho gusto de estar con ustedes, Jennifer. Hi, Adrian. I'm very happy to be with you, Jennifer, Adrian. I'm really happy to be here sharing this today with you. Dr. Margarita, we're glad that you're here. The second person who is joining us today from Sonora is Yvette Marion Arnold. 
And Yvette is a professional, an expert translator and uh, has quite proficient experience in localization. And Yvette is the owner of her own business. And we had the great pleasure of meeting two years ago, the first time I came to Hermosillo, when I had to introduce my company in 30 seconds or less in Spanish, and I could barely do that. So thank you for joining us and saving us each time in terms of making the message clear, Yvette. I'm honored to be here and help you in any way I can. Now, Yvette, before we dive into the conversation, which primarily because we're talking about mining is going to be between Dr. Margarita and Jennifer, I'd love to hear just a little bit from you about your experience your international experience and kind of this work that has emerged for you, your focus on translation, on cross-cultural communication, the services that you provide. How did you get into this and what work are you doing today? Well, uh, I've been a professional interpreter, conference interpreter and translator for the past 28 years after uh, getting professional uh, formal training uh, as an interpreter and translator, translator right after uh, I was, a, well, before that, I was a, an exchange student in Finland and there they talked me into getting into this. I love it. And right after uh, I finished my training as an interpreter and translator, I started working for mining companies doing written translations, most uh, mostly legal documents, and also in conferences and seminars. And uh, for the past 28 years, uh, it's been very interesting to see the uh, difference and the number of women who are involved in the mining sector. This has changed tremendously. Uh, if I compare the first seminars or, or conventions on mining, you would rarely see uh couple of women. But now their presence uh, is getting stronger. And I'm happy to be here and be part of this. Margarita, tell us a little bit about your organization, the Mining Cluster of Sonora. Give us an introduction to this group, to kind of how you got into it. And while you're at it, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you end up working in this role? Is this something you always wanted to do? Was it a historical accident? Well, I've been with the cluster for six years, which is how long the cluster has been around. I had the privilege and the honor to be able to start up this project jointly with mining business people who were the ones who had the idea of creating a cluster. And I've spent about nine, eight, nine years in the mining sector, but I'm a miner at heart. And I believe that all Sonoran women and men and in this mega region have some sort of bond, maybe not so evident, but all of us are linked to mining. As for my personal history, I come from a family that have, that has been somehow involved in mining. My dad was a gambusino, as we call them in Sonora, independent miners. He loved going out to the field with an old device, look for gold nuggets. My mom was born in a very old mining region in Sonora, and somehow the mining context has formed part of my life. As for my professional training, however, 
in its origin had no intention to be about mining. I'm an economist and I have a PhD in social sciences. I have always been interested in analyzing the world of work. And in my academic experience, I realized that gender perspective is an indisputable variable to be able to understand our local and global context. So I started doing gender studies. And when I just finished my PhD, it was very interesting that one day I had the opportunity of joining the mining sector. I was invited to work in a community and social development area for Grupo Mexico. And the truth is that it was super interesting to understand from this perspective with my academic uh, training, everything that was being done in mining. And the truth is that once you are attracted to by mining, you just can't stop being a miner. And every day I fall in love more and more with this sector. Every day I become more aware of how strategic and important mining is to maintain the quality of life that we have now. And what we do at the cluster is that we try to bring together all, all the stakeholders associated with the mining sector, companies, suppliers, providers, the academia, communities, and understand that we form part of a global value chain that needs to be professionalized and perfectly articulated to a function. So the cluster tries to support all these stakeholders to do business, to have a more responsible, more sustainable and safe mining. And in that sense, we do a series of things that range from training courses, work commissions, etc. In order to articulate the sector and be able to generate an environment that's suitable for mining. Jennifer, I'm going to let you run with this conversation and ask Margarita some of the questions I know are important to both of you. But I have one of my own just to start this off, which is it's clear from listening to your introduction, Dr. Margarita, that there are so many different voices you could use in this conversation. You could speak as the academic with the PhD. You could speak as the director general of the organization. You could speak as a, someone from the region impacted by this industry. You could speak as a participant in the economic development, someone who benefits from and leads the economic development. And those are all fascinating and important. And the one voice I'm really hoping we all get to hear together on this conversation in this series is the one that might be the hardest because there's not a lot of permission for this voice in the world. And that is the personal. In addition to your expertise, in addition to your leadership, what's it like for you personally to be in the position you're in now, managing these projects, participating in these conversations? What is your experience as an individual? Es la más importante y es la más compleja, sin duda. It's the most important one and the most complex one, undoubtedly, because precisely we just can't separate ourselves from each and every one of those roles that we have. And as a woman today, in addition to being the director of the cluster, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a daughter, I'm a, I'm a friend. And to be in a managerial position in the mining sector, it being a typically masculinized sector, it is a highly visible position and this implies 
a very strong responsibility. Of course, it is a privilege and it's an honor. And I assume this responsibility very respectfully, but it's a very important responsibility because being in this position implies that you have to answer, obviously, to the leaders who allow me to be here, to my associates at the cluster, but also to women who are trying to make way, who are trying to participate in the sector and who see in me a position that can bring about a role model. This is really a huge responsibility. And for the same reason, my greatest commitment is in that sense, in answering both to my professional responsibility and to my personal responsibility. And as a feminist, to be able to have this voice as well, which is not only only a voice that's heard, but also an informed voice, because I know firsthand what it means to work in the sector and because I know the reality of my co-workers in the sector. Thank you, Margarita, for the perfect explanation of, of what I know of you as a diplomat for the mining sector. And the, as Adrian mentioned before, the many roles that I have seen you play, I, I have learned a lot from you with regard to the, the mining industry in our region. And as we have been working together quite closely now for a couple of years, what always surprises me, or I shouldn't say surprise, but I'm, what always gratifies me is that consistently we see the same issues as important. Consistently, we see the same experiences that women have, positive or negative, unfortunately, many, many challenges. So a lot of the things that we want to talk about here today can easily be extrapolated outside of the mining industry and across the globe in terms of women at work. I guess probably one of the first things that we should talk about is, as we have discussed before, mining is the last bastion of masculinity in industry, or at least the most, I would say, untouched. And I I think sometimes that we're both insane for taking on this particular challenge of highlighting the, uh, you know, what women need to, strategies for women, opportunities for women uh, in a field that sometimes seems quite dark for women. I would like to ask you, why is that? Why is the mining sector so isolated in this respect where it hasn't moved with the times as some other industries have. Sin duda, cuando hablamos de trabajo en general, Undoubtedly, when we speak of work in general in any industry, we always speak of a late arrival of women to any industry because originally the work world was made for men because men were supposed to look for the bread and butter for families and because women were supposed to stay at home, taking care of children, having children, ironing for the husband so that he would look nice at work. In the case of the mining industry, gradually we saw, due to certain economic and social events, we saw how women started entering the labor market to factories because of war and so on, and how they entered when it was necessary for them to enter. And in the case of mining, it is an activity that most of the times takes place in remote sites, places where minerals geologically occur don't coincide with cities. So they're always 
remote sites and the first to arrive were the explorers. And until the very end of the last century, they depended a lot on brute force with the pick and shovel to extract the mineral, to carry materials. And that implied that for women, this could be an obstacle or impediment. And I'm sure that you've heard uh, about this, that there were a lot of myths about women that they shouldn't go into mines because earth would get jealous of another feminine presence and then mines would cave in and minerals would dry up abruptly and veins would disappear if a woman entered the mine. So we have this cultural part that prevented women from coming in. But as technology progressed and as there were other advancement in human rights, women started to have the opportunities to study aspects associated with things that were in the past only intended for men. So we have this new possibility now. Modern mining does not depend on pick and shovel or brute force. We have a lot of technology. There are even autonomous mines where vehicles are unmanned and somebody drives them in by computer. And this has allowed women to enter the sector. And it wasn't easy because men were not used to sharing this workplace with women. In Sonora, only 20 years ago, we can speak of women working at mines. Uh, there is a mine in Caborca, La Herradura. The first whole truck female operators were hired and the locals were surprised and said, how such a delicate woman? And people always said that m women are bad drivers. How could a woman drive such a huge vehicle, something so big? And surprisingly enough, it turned out that they were very good. And this has impacted productivity and many aspects. But what we still have to overcome is prejudice. The prejudice that women are not cut out for hard work because mining more and more requires strategy, intelligence, and sensitivity in order to meet and overcome all challenges that practically today are more social than technological in nature. I think you're exactly right. I, uh, at this point, as you mentioned, the mining industry is experiencing much more uh, a wave of technology, um, sustainability, services, all of these things, which are, I would say, more traditional female, don well, not ne necessarily technology, but more female dominated areas, or at least opening the door slightly to women to enter the field uh, instead of you know, being pushed back because we don't or are assumed not to have the physical strength for such work. However, I do think that we should also talk about what are the things that keep women out of the industry, which have nothing to do with physical strength and that sort of discrimination. Uh, a friend of mine is a, an academic and PhD on the topic of presumed incompetence which is something that women experience. Uh, I think probably Margarita, you have experienced this in your career. I can definitely say I have uh, had the, the pleasure of this experience, which means essentially the best way to describe it, I think, is that when a woman walks in the door, we need to prove ourselves 
And we need to consistently prove ourselves and prove ourselves again, even to be worthy of a seat at the table. Whereas when a man walks in the door, he is given that uh, assumed competence and has to prove that he doesn't have it. <laughs> so I would like to ask you what sort of things that you've seen in the, in the mining industry in Sonora. What are the other reasons women are prevented from entering the field or at least discouraged from doing so? Sí, definitivamente creo que el, este tema es, es transversal. Yes, definitely. I believe that this uh, cross-sectional women in the work world always have to be proving themselves that they are capable of getting the job done. So we, you have to prove that you know how to do it. You have to do it without making a mistake. And also you have to play a role that's socially expected from you. You have to be good. You have to be sensitive. You don't have to get angry. And also you have to raise a family on top of it all. So there is a lot of pressure on the expectation from women at work and in mining even more so. Also, there are certain issues that go hand in hand with mining, which has to do with this thing about having to work in remote areas, probably having to live in, in, in the mine camp and spend 20 days at the mine camp and then spend seven or 10 days at home. And this implies many barriers that sometimes are invisible, but those are we barriers for women and they have um, an effect of discrimination or segregation because usually when a man goes out to a mine camp, he has a family that will take care of home. And uh, if a woman leaves, she's said to be abandoning the space in the event that the woman has a family. But also we have pressure for women who decide not to have a family or who prefer to work. There's a lot of social pressure. And in this sector, there are more women, luckily, but it's still surprising that they, there are very few of them. And it feels impressive to see at events that people are still surprised that there are women in the sector and that there are women in technical programs. For example, when I just started working in the mining sector, I remember one of the first meetings that I attended to report on my work. So I arrived at a meeting room with 16 male engineers at a table and I was the only woman. So the expectation was Oh, and also there is a generational issue. So the gender issues always go accompanied by gender, race, cohort, age group, and so on. So it was like a woman in her 30s sitting there with a group of men, engineers, miners in their 50s on average. It was like, does she really know what she's talking about? And somebody, somebody even said that at that meeting. I was introduced and that person said, and does she know the mine? Has she been actually in, in the mine? Unfortunately, the leader of that meeting said, of course, and that's why she's here. And probably she knows the mine better than you do because additionally, she knows the context in the community and what the community is saying about the mine. So there is always this need for women to prove themselves, to prove that we have a voice and that we have an informed voice, that we have experience and that we are trained to be where we're at. And I think that 
This has to be understood by us as an opportunity to communicate better and to contribute to the sector with the sensitivity that it needs and the need to communicate better for all kinds of audiences. Jennifer, I have a question for you about this exact topic because your work for decades, both in North America and overseas, has put you in rooms with a lot of men in the IT industry and other tech contexts. And presumably what we're talking about is not, as you've both said, is not unique to mining and not unique to Mexico. So what's been your experience, Jennifer, overseas? And then you moved back to the States recently. Is it totally different or are there some uncomfortable similarities we need to be mindful of? It's interesting that you ask this question because I I often think about you know, my work experience, because the majority of my career has been spent outside of the United States rather than in it. So what I'm thinking about sexual harassment, discrimination, bullying, all of these things that women experience in the workplace, I'm always thinking of it as over there. And I have had, um, depending on whatever country that I landed in, it's been an interesting experience to sort of read the barometer for the tolerance of women at the table, because they're all different. But the reality is, no matter where you go in the world, men do assume from the get-go that they are much smarter than women. It is a challenge, and it, it depends on where you are in the world, whether that behavior is overt or covert. And in the context of the United States, much of this behavior is covert. I mean, we still have men who will openly discriminate against women. We still have men who will openly say derogatory things. But it's much more difficult because we have a legal system in the United States that supports women and discrimination at work and have had so since the 1970s. So it's more difficult for them to get away with, which has made this behavior more for lack of a better way to say it, sophisticated. And there are ways now that men disarm women and take away their authority at work that are so very subtle. And this can be in so many different ways. And a lot, the issue really is that, especially for younger women who are um, just beginning their careers, they may not even recognize that it's happening. So, to give an example uh, or a few examples. So when I, I landed back in the United States, Adrian, I, I believe we pretty soon after I got back here that we talked and I've now been back in Arizona for about three years. And I was lost on many levels about what Americans are thinking, what people in the United States, what women are doing. Uh, but I definitely need to say that I had plenty of these experiences here in Phoenix of microaggression and presumed incompetence. Uh, from the moment that I walked in the door. One example, and there were more than one, is uh, someone who had lived overseas once, 30 years ago, and had been here ever since. And yet this person, when I came to the table to see how we may collaborate and see what offer what I could bring experience-wise across four continents and 15 different countries, uh, this person began to educate me on what is intercultural communication and where I should go look for this information. Which is your field of expertise and practice. It was kind of a shock to the system. And as you can imagine, it was a short conversation. Yeah. Another thing that uh, occurred almost right after I arrived, it was a social occasion, but it was also a, um, a professional one where I, I was having a conversation with a, a man who, it was, it was a unique experience, but he was talking about investment strategies in a kind of unique way 
but I was curious about this and I asked him how many women clients he had. And someone who was in the group said, oh, if it's not about shoes and handbags, women aren't interested. This was two years ago. In the 21st century. So I, I, I wish things were a little bit more equal out there here in Arizona, but I don't think they are. Now, I have a question for both of you on this topic of presumed incompetence. It's a real thorny problem. It's probably at the root of 98% of the mansplaining. That's me being a man making up a fake statistic and acting like it's real. The irony is not lost on me. But the real scary thing for me is I observe the way systems of unequal power relations replicate themselves is that it's not just the men doing this to the women. Those younger female practitioners were often schooled in environments where the presumed incompetence and the way they were spoken to created within them the presumption of incompetence. It's, it's, in other words, it's not an accident that while the men are running around authorizing themselves to weigh in on anything, whether they actually know something about it or not, Women are, this is a stereotype, but it's backed up by the social science research. Women are much more cautious. They rely much more heavily on established authority. They feel like they need to prepare three times over. And, you know, this is even more complicated for women of color who are at this double disadvantage in these situations because systemic racism has put them in this inferior position and the patriarchy has slotted them in as well. So now you got to kind of overcome both of those things. How would you advise younger women rising up in their field, whether mining or anything, really deal with this on the internal side, as well as dealing with it out there in the workplace where it's very clear when it's happening to you? How do you deal with the internal side? Margarita, would you like to take it first? Es complicado porque otra vez estamos dándole responsabilidad. It's complicated because once again, we're giving the responsibility in this sense of Adrian's question, we are giving women the responsibility once again so that they have to respond when discrimination comes from somewhere else. So it is very important that for women to have support networks, that those of us who hold visible managerial positions to team up and reinforce and make way for those behind us. But the issue is not what women have to do individually to be heard. The question is what companies, institutions, authorities should be doing and are not doing to create an environment that women will need when they arrive and hold a work position. In that sense, I think that a piece of advice, and I don't like giving out advice, the basic piece of advice would be get to know as a woman your labor rights Get to know as a woman the legal framework of equality that should be in your countries. Get to know the international agreements. Get to know all the legal structure that will allow you as a woman to exercise the right to your right to work and the right to a life free of violence at work, at home, anywhere. And whatever the personal strategy is in the case of women. The strategy usually is I prepare myself better, I prepare better, I study, I get to know, I try to understand. The strategy has to come from somewhere else. 
the strategy has to be systemic and institutional. Well said, my friend. Uh, I'm, 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 so many different thoughts are going through my mind as uh, as you're talking about this. And as you said, we we have a responsibility as visible female leaders to use our voices to make sure that we're talking about it, right? So first of all, we start here and make sure that we're illuminating that these things can't go unrecognized, undiscussed, unaddressed, because that perpetuates the cycle, right? Just keeping everything quiet um, certainly doesn't help anyone to address a system of behavior. As I say that, however, I have to go back to my earlier story about the person in the shoes and handbags comment that my first reaction was infuriation. I was infuriated. I was absolutely beside myself that this remark was made and I reacted as such. And then I, my second internal mechanism said, apologize for reacting that way, which is, I mean, even as I'm saying this to you, I'm embarrassed. Don't apologize for expecting to be treated as an equal. I think that's incredibly important. One of the other things that you were talking about, Margarita, is that women have inherent strengths in how we communicate, how we work. We have a different type of skill set to bring to the table that is often perceived as a threat because our experience is different. And I think this is a lot of the reason why we get this pushback in the workplace is that, oh no, well, we can't do things how we've always done them. Now there's a woman here. And the reality is that it can be quite an enhancement in the way of work, in the processes and procedures that need to be put in place, in solutions. I mean, this is definitely true from a multicultural standpoint, right? That you and I, for example, if we take the experience of working together and is what you called earning the PhD in bicultural project management over some of the things that we've done, we find that there are stronger, more robust solutions that come out of multicultural teams and multiple perspectives. We have completely different experience to bring to the table. And so the the same is true with men and women. However, the one thing I would like to bring up at this point is women and women and women supporting women or not, as the case may be. I'd like to hear your comments on this, Margarita, but from what I see uh, and have seen, and this is universal so far in mi vida, there are two types of women. There is the woman who works extremely hard to, to get into her position, or, or maybe she, she didn't have to work quite as hard, but she did reach that top level position. And she closes the door and expects other women to do it themselves to, to achieve what she has achieved and doesn't offer any assistance. The other type of woman is someone who feels obligated, and it's not even a sense of obligation, it's just human decency to be a support rather than yet another obstacle that a woman has to face in the workplace and to lend a hand. I've noticed that there are certain dynamics in play in Mexico that we don't have here, such as traditionally speaking, a woman will support a man before they will support another woman, oftentimes, because that has been seen traditionally and culturally as a source of protection. And I want to hear what you have to say about this. It's a very interesting aspect. And it's also one of the issues why women are also blamed for discrimination. Women who are helping other women and women who are 
climbing up on their professional career without looking down. I think that we should not blame them. At the end of the day, those are strategies and those are strategies that certain women have in order to stay in power. The issue here is that power is traditionally masculine. So what those women do to stay on that way is to masculinize themselves in their practice of power. So I don't blame women. I blame patriarchy. It's the way that patriarchy has an incidence on those women who somehow obtain or reach a managerial hierarchy position and provide no support to other women. I think that women who work with women have to work more with those women because sometimes our, we're looking at those who are coming behind, trying to make way for new women, and we have not knocked the, the, the doors of those who have authority positions and tell them, hey, we're doing this. We would love if you were on our side as well. I see this as an area of opportunity to sensitize those women who have not become aware that there is a mechanism of discrimination that's taken, taking advantage of the privilege that they have. And well, it can be very shocking. It can be very powerful for women who are on this way to suddenly see how other women are not sensitive. But I believe it's worthwhile working with them. I think it's worthwhile inviting them to see all that they could gain themselves by including more women in their networks, especially because this is something that probably they are facing. Women have a two-way discrimination. We have discrimination and violence at work because discrimination has to be called by its name. Discrimination is violence. Women who live to suffer discrimination at work are being violated and they're being violated maybe by labor mechanisms, but also by sexual discrimination and sexual harassment is that's always a monster lurking out there. So we have to be worried about taking care of our work and we have to be worried and concerned about taking care of our emotional and personal integrity and not be objectified and sexualized when those are, uh, those are thing, things that are outside the scope and they should be outside the scope in which our job is evaluated. Those are things that men usually don't face in the same sense and with the same frequency as women do, because of course there are violent women and women who violate and women who harass. But statistics show that in general terms, women are the main victims of these crimes because that's what they are crimes. I think that's a really, that's a very important point um, that much of this discrimination isn't necessarily anything to do with sexual harassment or sexualizing is about power. And it's about who has the power and who doesn't and making sure that certain people are excluded from the power. And as you very rightly point out, the more pers perspectives and experience and paths that you can bring to the table uh, or that you allow into the conversation 
bring better solutions, bring more options, more ways to solve a particular dilemma. So I can say from, from my perspective here in Arizona, one of the things I know that we've talked about before and we talk about often here is how critically important it is for women to have support networks. I, I began realizing how absolutely important this was when I first moved overseas and was away from my support network and my peers and all of the respect and credibility that I had built up. It doesn't transfer when you leave. So therefore, you're much more vulnerable outside of your home state or home country um, to people intentionally, men or women, damaging your credibility, your respect. So support networks, I really can't express enough how, in, how important they are and how crucial they are to women, which is, I know why, one of the reasons you and I are sitting here today is that we recognize this and we want to continue to make sure that, there, that other women out there aren't left without resources and support. It's one of the reasons that I, along with two globally-minded friends, began the Worldly Women Collective here in Phoenix a group of internationally minded women uh, to provide that support for one another because it's not about traditional networking. It's about truly valuing the experience of someone else and learning and gaining strategies for what you are no doubt going to face in the work world, whether it's mining in Mexico or technology in Australia. So I guess my last question or for you would be, What other advice do you have for women to get support? Sin duda, creo que esto último que tú mencionas, Jennifer, es muy importante. Undoubtedly, I believe that the last thing you mentioned, Jennifer, is very important. I think that you and I have it very clear, and that's why in spite of the cultural differences and in spite of the fact that we speak Spanglish most of the time, There is a reality that brings us together beyond language, beyond the place where we live and the particular situations that we face. And that's the condition of gender, the condition of being women. So indeed, to be able not only to reinforce, but also to professionalize support networks for women is very important. We started this with mega women the miners in the mega region, because we know that there is a very important number of women who have personal heritage and who have very valuable experience that should be shared. Therefore, open up, opening up these spaces. And I really like to thank Adrian to give us the opportunity to be talking in his radio show. This allows us to reach more women. This is part of our work, to work in networks that can be informal, but as we formalize them in a better way, establishing our strategies, identifying what our challenges are, listening to others, being respectful for the sense of others and trying to spread this information any way we can to the largest number of women is important, but also to women. It is very important to work with allies. And the issue is, If the ones who are responsible, and I don't mean to offend anybody here, but if those who are responsible for discrimination are those who exercise power and power now globally is in the hands of men, we won't be able to change the situation if men don't change the way they think. This is not 
stubbornness from women. This is not our, a whim. This is something that we have to do as a society if we want to have a world that would really turn around all those challenges that we have, such as climate change, violence, and so on. And here, mining plays a strategic role. Mining can be the doorway to new materials. Mining can be that ally to revert global warming. But we need a mining that is better understood by society. And, and here, women also play a very important role. Maybe I rambled a little bit in my answer, but the issue of working on respectful, professionalized, formalized ne networks to exchange our points of view is very, very important. But also, women have to be aware that these networks have to lead us to take action. I mean, it's not just about talking among ourselves and say, oh, poor thing, you got discriminated. No, we have to be aware of the mechanism that's behind this. And the name of this episode, what lies beneath all this process of discrimination and then propose answers and go knocking on doors, legislators, and say, we need legal frameworks that are more and more adequate to diverse work. We need real public policies that put the relevance of life in the middle, because what we're speaking of now is not I work in an isolated way. It's life. And people now spend most of our time at work. And now with the pandemic, work has moved home. And all of a sudden, you're in the middle of everything. So let's work on networks. Let's talk a lot, a lot about what this means. But also, let's talk to those who can give a punctual answer to these concerns that we have and these challenges and these barriers that women are facing very strongly in all spaces. Jennifer, one of the things about your work is it puts you in interesting conversations and has you attending events, speaking on topics of your expertise. This is all leading up to an event happening in Sonora in October. Tell us a little bit about the event, your contribution and so on. What do people need to know and how can they participate? Thank you, Adrian. You're right. I do have the opportunity to speak to many different groups of people from many different nationalities. It gives me the opportunity to speak about the principles and core concepts of intercultural communication at work and in business, how we can collaborate more effectively with one another by understanding the perspective of one another and taking the time to do so. I'm very excited that I will be returning to, to see my friends in Hermosillo, Sonora, uh, October 5th through 7th to participate in and be a speaker at the Discoveries Mining Conference. The topic is intercultural communication, your secret weapon in the global mining industry. And it is a secret weapon. Understanding cultures, the weight of words, the importance of language, Every culture has its secret code, which we all take for granted and we don't articulate and we just expect everyone else to understand and abide by without telling them what it is. So I like to tell people what the secret code is. 
And that's what I'll be doing in Hermosillo in October. Before we wrap up this conversation, I want to ask a question to Yvette Marianne, because as the two of you, Jennifer and Margarita, are talking, it's clear to me as an observer, an outsider, that, well, there is physical violence, force, uh, sexual harassment of a physical nature. The domain for so much of the discrimination and harassment and aggression that you two have spoken to so eloquently in this episode is the domain of language. Yvette, you are an expert translator. You are working in the microdynamics of conversations as an interpreter, whether it's simultaneous or working with legal texts, you are immersed in the field of language and conversation. And this is not the hat that you might normally wear, but I want to ask you if it's okay to reflect on that for a minute. What are your observations about how men and women talk to each other? And what could we all do better? Yvette? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, there's a big, big movement in the Spanish language right now. Because in Spanish, as you uh, may be aware, we have the feminine and the masculine gender. And a lot of people are moving towards inclusive or, uh, yeah, inclusive language that would be having more neutral gender names and adjectives. And I'm not a fan of uh, having those changes approved because, in my opinion, Language violence does not require uh, having a certain gender in the name or in the adjective. Yeah, grammatical gender. The fact that nouns in many languages have a grammatical gender, you know, table is feminine, rock is masculine, whatever. That's important, maybe. But if we were to say on a scale of one to 10, where's the actual violence against women being carried out in the boardroom, in the conference room, at the work site? It's not at the level of the grammatical gender of nouns and pronouns, although that's important. I don't want to diminish, especially personal pronouns. I 100% support people being called by whatever pronoun they want to be called. But let's set that aside for a second. You are observing, although maybe you're not, because when you're immersed in translation, you're not reflecting on it, you're doing it. In other words, you're inside the conversation rather than outside. So maybe what I'm asking is not possible. I, I literally have no idea. But now as you reflect on the fact that you see men and women talking to each other, you see many of the issues that Dr. Margarita and Jennifer have talked about, the interrupting, the presuming that women don't know what they're talking about, the restating what a woman said as if it was your own idea, even when she said it five seconds ago, do you have any thoughts about language and conversation and how we could do better? It's so subtle. Gender violence, language-wise, is so subtle. Even when they they're trying, when men are trying to be nice, they're still violent. Now the lady has the floor. Instead of saying, Dr. Margarita has the floor, if she's one person at a table with 15 male engineers, and someone says, now the lady has the floor. That is subtle. And that has to do with, with language. Yeah, subtle and it's violent. Dr. Margarita, Jennifer, what are your thoughts on this? How can we all do better in the way we talk to each other? 
Well, one thing I would I would point out is there's a term for what you described, Adrienne, about. Uh, so there are several of us sitting at the table, and I just I propose an idea or suggestion, and uh, it, there is silence at that table, and then the man next to me raises the same solution or idea and the table says, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Right. It's he peated. He, he peated what I just said. So we've got a lot of these new terms, um, after, after mansplaining, I don't, as Yvette so eloquently said, very often the words themselves don't reflect the opinion, the intent, or the behavior. And I think, I mean, this is something that is true with intercultural communication worldwide as well, worldwide as well that the words are 7% of the message. So not only do we need to be educating men about what language is and isn't permissible or acceptable in the workplace, but we also need to be educating women. I very often hear women say, go girl, go. In a professional setting, first of all, I'm not a girl and haven't been one for some time. So I think education is key. I don't think changing the language, as Yvette said, is the key. Education, collaboration, illumination. That's what I think. Dr. Margarita, we'll give you the last word. So much of this happens in the way we talk to each other, with each other, and to ourselves. What do we need to do better? Precisely, we need to name what has to be named. I do have a very radical stance about the inclusive use of language because what you don't mention doesn't exist. And if you stop naming women, you make them invisible and dull and dark in the world. And that's why we have to speak of female engineers and male engineers. And maybe in Spanish, this is stronger precisely because of the particularities of our language. But there is an entire resistance from the Spanish Royal Academy. And with all due respect, there are a bunch of old men speaking of last century Spanish when we have a different society now. And it's very important because language is one of the elements that separated human beings from the rest of animals. So language is a very powerful tool. And if this has to be my last comment, I would like to say, let's use language as a tool. Let's make ourselves present women, female Miners, female engineers, w women who are working anywhere at a mine, at home, at the office to voice our opinion and to give our contribution that from language is very ascribed to women. Let's use the stereotype in our favor. If we're always being told that women talk a lot, let's talk in our favor and let our voices be heard. And I'd like to think that we are doing this job and that's why the miners at the mega region are speaking and talking so much and we will continue talking, we will continue working. In September, we have a program of mentorships for my, uh, female miners and we want to be a significant exercise, not only for the region, but also enjoyable for us as women so that we can give each other tools and we do this through language so let's keep talking 
Dr. Margarita Bejarano is general director of the mining cluster of Sonora. Yvette Marian is a translation and localization expert. She owns Yvette Marian Translations based in Hermosillo, Sonora. Jennifer Burge is CEO of Worldwise Coaching and Training based in Phoenix, Arizona and Hermosillo, Sonora. I want to thank you all for joining us for this conversation. Muchas gracias, Adrian. Gracias a todos. Thank you so much, Adrian. Gracias, Yvette. Un gusto como siempre, Jennifer, compartir contigo. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Adrian. Always a pleasure, Jennifer, to share this with you. 